0: The reading this morning is from First Timothy chapter three from verse fourteen down to the last verse, and then I will continue reading uh, from chapter four verses one till five. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you this instruction so that if I am delayed. You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicted by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been served as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. God bless His word.
1: All right, there we go. Um, well good morning yes we find ourselves back into first Timothy once again um, and uh, I did miss you guys I know I've said this several times but I did miss you guys last week um, I hope that you enjoyed your time with Joel and Natalie um, and one thing I do really hope is that as we've been teaching through first Timothy that I mean I've tried to emphasize this but all of this right everything that Paul's written kind of all points back to the main reason why he wrote the letter, which is to show the results of good teaching versus bad teaching. This all starts back in verse 3 of chapter 1, right? Paul writes and says, Timothy, he's placed him there in Ephesus to confront these false teachers and that have brought these false doctrines to the church. And remember, one of Paul's main points that he started with, and you kind of see echoed throughout this whole book, is that Good teaching, good doctrine leads you to show love to others, to God, and it comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And in fact, from what we have studied over the last few weeks, we see that those qualities are the things we should see in the leaders of the church and those who serve the church. Like if the church is doing its job, then it should be easy for people to pass the test that Paul talks about with deacons because they should already have that. Like, that's what good teaching leads to. And if that's true, then, then we must ask this question. Well, is the church doing its job? Right? Is Are we seeing these kinds of people come out of the church today? Are we seeing people who have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? I mean, I really hope that that is what is happening. I hope that that's what's happening here. I hope that that will be a result that when people come to Ainsford that that is what's built up into them. In the same way, I really hope up in stone that the people that are going up there, that that's that's the result of the teaching of the fellowship. But there is an issue to this, right? It's not just that good teaching leads to that. It's that you can't just come and hear it and just expect it to happen. Like it actually is a two-way street. It takes some effort on your part as well. Like when I was younger... I spent the summer working up at this camp called Hume Lake. It was, it's this big Christian camp in California. It was a place that I went year after year growing up as a camper. And they always had these great speakers. And it was just like this place where it always seems like there was like a spiritual like, just environment. Like you could feel God's presence. So you know, I went and I worked the whole summer there. And I was kind of expecting, well, I'm just there. I'm naturally just going to grow in my faith. Like, I'm just, like, by osmosis, like, the spirituality was just going to somehow come into my body or something like that. But I was challenged by that. Because there was a speaker one time who spoke to the whole staff, the whole summer staff, and basically said, no, that's not how it works. Like, just because you're here, just because you might hear good speakers, just because you hear good teaching, doesn't mean you automatically grow in your faith. You have to put in work as well. And I think this is the actual issue, I think this is the secret of why false teaching can come in, is because we stop putting in the work ourselves. Because if we're not standing firm on what we believe, if we're not working on growing our faith, it'll be easy to be swept up in the next fad that comes along. And the picture that we've seen in First Timothy is that false teaching, when it creeps in, It's easy to trap you. It wants to trap you. It wants to get you to just think about it and nothing else. I mean, Paul talks about these endless genealogies in chapter 1 when he's talking about the false teachings, this idea that people have gotten so obsessed with essentially these ancient conspiracy theories that that was all that they thought about. And because of that, they were being pulled away from good teaching, from good doctrine. But there is a solution. There's a way to free ourselves from the, from the trap that this false teaching is trying to do. And that is just by being the true church. Because what we're going to see today is that when we understand what we are a part of, when we understand what we truly believe, and when we live it out, then we can be set free from the deceptive philosophies that come from both outside and within the church that wants to imprison us. And with all that said, let's dive into the text today. So hopefully if you still have your Bibles open, um, follow along with me. I'm, I'm always encouraged when I see people have their Bibles open. It doesn't have to be physical. It can be an app, whatever's easiest for you. But join me and let's read verses 14 and 15 together. It says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Right? Paul, once again, is starting off talking about how he's just reinforcing why he wrote the letter. He's like, I'm writing all of this to help you combat these false teachings. He's writing to Timothy to help him combat the issues in that church. Right? Everything he's talked to us, everything that we've studied so far about why the law is good, uh, why Jesus came to save sinners, why we need to be people of prayer, what an overseer looks like, what a deacon or a servant looks like. All of those things are not just so that we can know how a church should operate, but it should, it's to help us understand that this is what correct teaching leads to. This is what we should be promoting. And notice what he calls the church. He calls it the household of God. And, you know, I've talked about this often. I even talked about it earlier today that we are a family, Right? We're all brothers and sisters. And I think also what's interesting is that that reminder that we're a household ties back to what we've been studying about overseers and servants or deacons because it says that they need to be people who can manage their own households well. It just goes to show again that our families, in a way, prepare us for serving the church. They prepare us for what we should be working towards, right? The thing that we want to be when we grow up, which is an overseer. But there's another really interesting thing about Paul calling the church the household of God, and that's tied to what he says the church is, which is a pillar. Now, if, if you've been reading through your Bible, you're probably very familiar with pillars because they show up all throughout the Bible. People are setting them up all over the place. And essentially, a pillar is just a way to set up like a monument, right? Right? It's so that they will remember something. Whether that is it's something that God's done, it could be a treaty, it could be a bunch of different things. But pillars are there so that when people see it, they remember something important. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Genesis 28. We're going to actually go look at the first time a pillar was set up. Um, Real quick, as you are flipping there, in Genesis 28, what we do is we're going to find Jacob on the run from his brother Esau. He has just stolen Esau's birthright um, by tricking their father. And he is fleeing to his uncle Laban. And on the way, when he's fle- on his way where he's fleeing away from Esau, he ha- he goes to sleep because obviously there's a multi-day journey. He's not just gonna walk the whole time. And when he's sleeping, he has this dream. And in that dream, it's this famous scene of Jacob's ladder. He sees, you know, angels descending and ascending to heaven, and above, up he sees God, Well, he sees a, really a glowing figure, and God tells him how he's going to take care of him, how he's going to watch over him. And so we're going to start in verses 18, and we're basically going to read what is Jacob's response to this dream. So starting in verse 18 to the end of 28, it says this, So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So, right, so we just, God shows up to Jacob. He wakes up, and what's the first thing he does is he sets up a pillar. And like I said, this is the first time we see a pillar being set up in the Bible. And what's really interesting is what he says about this pillar, right? Did you catch that? He says that if God's faithful to him that this pillar is going to be the household of God. It's the same words that Paul is using. In fact, I'm pretty sure when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, he has this story in the back of his head while he's writing those things for us. The, and what's significant about this is that you've got to remember, Jacob at this point in his life, he doesn't really know God. He, really does, is not, he doesn't really know the God of his fathers, in fact, he probably, he, from what we read, it seems like he thinks that that is some special place. Like, God is just there. Like, God's not everywhere. He doesn't really recognize that till later on in his life. But that means the reason why that pillar is significant is that for him, that pillar is where God dwells. That pillar is where he encountered God. So when Paul says that we are the pillar, that means that when people encounter the church, when people encounter us, that should be the place where they encounter the creator of the universe. Right? Because the church, the church is us, right? The church is the people that are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We are a representation. We are a monument to God's faithfulness to the world. But not just that, we are the place where those who are seeking God should meet him. Right? It's in that, it's a challenge, Right? We should be living a life that when somebody encounters us, when they talk to us, when we meet them on the street, whatever happens, when we're interacting with that person, that person should feel like they are having an encounter with God himself. But is that the way that you see yourself? Is that how you live your life? Because, like, I mean, I don't always live my life that way either. It's, it's actually interesting to sit back and think, well, what does a life look like? Where That would be true a life where when somebody encounters you they're encountering God But I think to understand that to answer that question We need to look at the second thing that Paul talks about that says the church He says the church is a pillar and as the ESV puts it a buttress Which I think is still a funny word, but anyways It's uh, a buttress is one of those like support things on the outside of a cathedral But I've actually spent some time just looking up, okay, what is the Greek word? Like, why did they get buttress here? And that Greek word is actually a little bit of a challenge because it's the only time that's used in the New Testament, so you can't just compare it to somewhere else. But from looking at the different translations and looking up the Greek definition, it seems like it could be translated as ground, foundation, support, or basis. So it seems like the idea is that while the pillar is a reminder, right? The pillar is a monument to God's truth— We are also the thing that supports or upholds God's truth. It's like literally God's truth is placed on top of us. I mean, which makes sense because who else is going to uphold God's truth besides us, the people who actually believe it? But this does bring a challenge, right? Because now we need to ask ourselves, well, it's not just how do we live a life where people, when they meet us, they encounter God, but how do we live a life when they meet us, they encounter God's truth when they're confronted by the truth of God, I mean, I've heard people say that the Christian life is easy, and it is true in a way, right? God is on our side. Who, is, who can be for, against us if God is for us, right? Jesus reminds us that his burden is light, his yoke is easy. But there is a challenge to living the Christian life. It, isn't, it is a little bit hard because this is how we need to live. Because there are days I'm going to be honest with you. There are days where I don't want to be a pillar and buttress of God's truth. There are times when I'm meeting with people who are not saved where I don't want to talk about Jesus. It could be because I'm afraid of what they're going to say. It could be that um, I'm just tired and I don't want to get into it. It could be that I'm being lazy. It could be that for some reason I think it's rude to interject Jesus into the conversation. But when I do that, when I stop myself from doing that, I'm stopping myself from being the church. I'm no longer being the church for this person who I'm talking to. And especially as we think about how we're going to grow Ainsford, especially as we're going off to that training for church planting and thinking about what is it going to take and you know, and I'm totally excited to like start doing some of the things that I know you guys have done before, like having lunches and maybe having an alpha course and getting the community in here. But say we have a meal and we get this room full of people and they all, are, they all leave satisfied and full, but they didn't encounter God at all. Well, then we've failed to be the church. We were just a community center at that point. So let us live a life every day where we are these two things, where we are a pillar and a ground, a foundation for God's truth. Let this be a place that when outsiders come in, they encounter God. They encounter the very being that created them and loves them more than they could ever know. Okay, I need to get off my soapbox and keep moving because otherwise we're gonna be, the sermon's gonna go way too long. Um, hopefully, if you've kept your finger in First Timothy, Flip back to that, because we're going to read verse 16 together. Um, 1 Timothy three sixteen says this. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Right? If you remember last week, Uh, when Paul was talking about the qualifications for a servant or for a deacon, um, he says that one of the qualifications was that they needed to hold on to the mystery of the faith. Well, just a few verses later, Paul's like, hey, here's the mystery, right? This is what we should be holding on to. This is what we believe. And what's great about this is that it's really a simplified version of the gospel. Like if you memorize this little creed, it's so that's an easy and quick way to tell somebody, Oh yeah, this is what I believe, and you can give them a complete synopsis of Jesus's life because like it's so great when we break this down, right? He starts off by saying he was manifested in the flesh, and there's so many so many places and so much time we could spend to just talking about that alone, like we could talk about the Christmas story and Jesus's birth. We could talk about the fact that Jesus had to empty himself so that he could take on the form of a man, but I think... John 1.14 summarizes it the best when it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? Jesus was fully God. He was not created by God. He was not some human being that was just, had God's spirit. He was God in the flesh. So, right, so that's the first main point of the gospel is he was manifested in the flesh. And then Paul says, well, he was vindicated by the Spirit. John, John 1, just a little bit further, in verse 32, says this, And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Right, when Jesus starts his ministry, he goes and gets baptized by John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit literally shows up just so that everybody can be, can make it crystal clear to everybody that, hey, this is the Messiah. Right, so he was vindicated by the Spirit. Paul then says that he was seen by angels. Well, after Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, Matthew 11 tells us that, then the devil left him, and behold, angels. Sorry, I lost my spit. Uh, behold, angels came and took care of his every need. Jesus was then proclaimed among the nations, and that's there's lots of examples of that. Whether it's the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, the man who had the legion of demons in him because he wasn't Jewish, uh, the centurion who comes and asks him for to um, heal one of his servants or at the end of jesus's ministry in john twelve twenty to 21 it says now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some greeks so these came to philip who was from bethesda in galilee and asked him sir we wish to see jesus paul then says that jesus was believed on in the world and again Many examples, but the one that comes to mind immediately for me is Mark fifteen thirty nine, which says, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And then lastly, of course, he was taken up in glory. And I think there's the most obvious verse to flip to for that is Acts 1, 9, which says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, And a cloud took him out of their sight. This is what we believe, church. Right? We believe that Jesus, someone who was fully God, he lived a perfect life. He was vindicated by the Spirit, right? He had the Holy Spirit descend upon him. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And he was crucified, but he rose again. And then he was taken up in glory. And I want to say if you are watching this and you have never heard this or maybe you don't believe this, maybe you question whether or not this is a mystery that you hold on to, well, reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you about it because honestly, this ministry, this, this truth, when you believe it on it, when you stand firm, when this is the foundation that you build your life on, it sets you free. It sets you free from everything else. Because, and I know that it sets you free because when you reject this, when you know it but you forget it, when you turn your back on it, you end up like the people that we read about in 1 Timothy 4. So, if you have, so look at 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 3 with me. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. If you were to like sit down, and I, ho- I hope that you've done this at some point in your life, and if you haven't, you should do this. But if you were to sit down and read through like just the New Testament and the order that the Bible presents it, then 1 Timothy shouldn't be a surprise. In fact, you should kind of expect like, even if you didn't know what was coming next, you should kind of expect that First Timothy would eventually appear. Because when you're reading through Acts, you get to Acts 20. And in fact, uh, if you have your Bibles flipped there, and we're going to talk through that. But in Acts 20, uh, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. But before he goes to Jerusalem, he calls together the elders from Ephesus. The elders of the church in Ephesus, right? This is the elders, the leaders of the church that Paul, that Timothy is in right now. This is the church that Paul is saying, here's all the issues I'm trying to have you fix. So in Acts 20, I mean, honestly, if you have the time, we're not going to read the whole thing because just we don't have the time this morning. But if you could read, I mean, from verse, just verse 17 all the way to the end, it, it adds so much context to what's going on in First Timothy. But what we're going to do is we're going to focus just specifically on verses 28 to 30. It says this Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things be twisted things to draw away the disciples after them and actually just read verse 31 one more with me too therefore be alert remembering that for 3 years i did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears right paul several years ago told them that all the things he's writing about was going to happen Right, He said, in verse 31, he saw them. He's like, you guys need to be careful. This is going to happen. Because you see, when we forget the good news, when we stop being a pillar and buttress of God's truth, it's easy for false teachers to come in. And not just false teachers coming in from the outside. Did you see what he said was going to happen? It's not just from the outside. It was people that were already spiritual leaders there in the church that would fall away people that were already there that they trusted would become these false teachers. Which is why, as a church, we need to be careful to not just let our church leaders do whatever they want, right? If I ever got up here, if anybody ever got up here and started preaching something that seemed a little bit off, that should be a flag that goes up. right? You shouldn't just be like, oh, maybe that he's just, they're just having an off day or something. Ask them about it. Bring it up. Because the worst thing we can do is sit idly by while a spiritual leader slowly becomes more and more trapped by a false doctrine that they're being caught up in. Because look at what happens to someone who falls away, right? It says that his, not only are these teachings are from demons, but it says that their consciences are seared. Remember when Paul wrote this whole letter, he started by saying having a good conscience, right? A pure heart sincere faith a good conscience conscience was a big is a big deal in fact you see him talking about having a good conscience throughout the entire letter so far it's really important for him that somebody has a good conscience because what we see is that false teachers have the opposite in fact look it says that they were seared right and there's like two main ways you can interpret it neither way is good the first is that you're seeing it; they were seared like they were actually like marked like they were branded. Like literally the demonic teachings have branded their consciences so that it's they're no longer even like their own. It's like they belong to the demons. The other way is that they were seared like it was just so burned that it's just, it's dead. It's unhealthy. It's like when you cook something for way too long and you just can't eat it anymore because it's just charcoal. Right? It's There's nothing good about it anymore. It's Right? no matter way, what, however you look at this verse, it's not a good thing to have your conscience seared. So we need to make sure that we're careful and not let any of our teachers end up in that place. But how, do you, how can you tell if they're teaching something false? Well, first, one of the key things, as we've seen through this book, is that if their teaching leads to some kind of division, that's usually a big flag that they're getting off, off track. The other thing is that they start restricting things that God says are good. Because notice, that's what Paul says these teachers are doing, right? First, he says that these teachers were saying, don't get married. Like, that was one of their teachings. Which, when you think about it, it makes total sense now why that whole husband of one wife was an overseer and servant. Because, obviously, these false teachers, these false leaders of the church in Ephesus was saying, don't get married. And Paul's like, actually, I'm going to give you the opposite of what they say because we need to really correct this ship. It is going towards an iceberg and we need to turn it around. But also notice that Paul says that they are trying to also restrict food, like specific types of food. And Paul actually, surprisingly, has a lot to say about food. I I don't know if you know this, but food comes up quite a bit In Paul's letters, whether that's in 1 Corinthians 10 or Romans 14, but it's always about how food should not be something that divides us, and I think a key to seeing Paul's passion about this is Galatians 2.14, because in Galatians 2, Paul's giving a little bit of his testimony, and at one point he talks about how he had to confront Peter. So in Galatians 2.14 it says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, Before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Like essentially Peter, at first, was totally fine with eating with Gentiles, being around Gentiles, and then some other people who came in who said, no, you need to be like Jews, showed up, and then he stopped doing that. And Paul said, what you're doing is not in line with the truth of the gospel, right? That was the issue. It's not just that Peter stopped being around some people, it's that he was causing a hurdle. He was causing a wall to be put up that was keeping people away from being saved. Because the truth is, is what Paul says is that God has made pure the things that that we thought are unpure. And one of the biggest ways we see this in the New Testament is that the fact that the Jews never thought the Gentiles could become saved, and when they become saved, it blows their mind. Which is why I think... Paul ends this section this way. He says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. God's truth overrides any false teachings that try to trap us because the good news of Jesus is something that is freeing. It allows us to live life to the fullest. So what? Why do we study all this? Well, we are called to be a people that should cause those around us to have an encounter with the God that loves them. Right? They should have an account when they're meeting with us, when they're talking with us, they should be encountering the God that loves them so much that he sent his only sons to die for them so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life every day we should be living a life that upholds the truth so that those around us can be confronted by it. So as you go about your day, every day, I hope that you hold firm to this mystery, as Paul calls it. And I hope, actually, if you want to just memorize this simple little saying so that when someone asks you what you believe, well, you say that, I believe, well, Jesus was fully God, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and he was taken up in glory. And as we hold firm to this truth, we make sure that we keep those who are in church leadership in check so that they don't fall into the trap of the false teachings, but instead that our teachers are leading us in a life that is marked by the freedom we have in God. So just two questions to leave you with. Are you convinced of this mystery? And are you set free? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much that you are the God that sets us free. That you are the God that um, just comes and dwells within us. And God, like I said, I just pray that your presence will be just, that we will be just so full of the Holy Spirit that our cups will run over, that literally your love, your presence will just pour out from us so that those who we interact with will have no Choice but to be confronted with your truth. No choice but encountering the creator of the universe, the very being that created them. God, I pray that that's how we will live our lives. I know it's a challenge, God, and I know that it's really hard to do, and I know that's why you said you will give us your strength, because your strength is endless. Your power is endless. It is so good that we don't have to do it all by ourselves. As we sang earlier, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. God, I just pray that that will be true for all of us. As we go out from today, as we leave the church today, as we go through our lives this week, as we encounter people, no matter whether they're family, friends, strangers, whoever they are, I pray that when somebody comes and meets us, that we will be a pillar and a buttress of your truth that we will be a constant reminder to those around us that there is a God that loves them and wants to have a relationship with them. In your name.